Well, please have that passage open in front of you in 1 Peter chapter 1. And actually, our text is verse 22. And uh, we saw this morning that real love is defined by God. He is love. And that love is demonstrated in the coming of the Lord Jesus, God's Son, to save sinners, that divine rescue mission. And as believers, we are often too quick to forget the immense cost of that salvation, the immense cost of the love of the Saviour who went to the cross and suffered and bled and died in our place, the one who was wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities so that we could be delivered, so that we could be forgiven and made right with the Holy God. How can we ever thank him enough? But if you remember, Peter has begun this letter that he is writing under the inspiration of the Spirit by speaking in those terms of the great wonder and the glory of the salvation that we have been given. And as he has drawn this out, we have been into the depths of the eternal plan of God, the wonder of that, and how it is applied to the individual and how believers are drawn together into local bodies of his people. And as Peter explains these things, he also turns to the response of gratitude that there should be in the life of the believer to God's work in them. And in verses 13 to 21, he dealt with how the believer is to respond to the Lord in this. And he calls for a, a proper response of loving thankfulness to the Lord which should show itself in trusting him, in fixing our hope upon the promises that he has given, in pursuing holiness of life, which pleases the Lord, and just seeking to honor the Lord day by day in the situation in which he has placed us and called us. And then in verse 22, we see that Peter now deals with how the believer should respond to this amazing salvation given by grace in terms of their attitudes and their actions towards others. And so if we have been saved, the question is, what should our response be to other believers? And particularly within a, a body of the Lord's people, well, he says this, love one another fervently, with a pure heart. Love one another fervently with a pure heart. You see, when God is at work, when we are granted that new life in Christ, when we're given that fresh start of walking with him, love should happen. It is a mark of the Christian life. And in fact, it is amazing, really, when you read through the New Testament just how often this basic command to love one another is repeated. And so this exhortation from Peter here is not unfamiliar to anyone who knows their Bible, and it shouldn't be unfamiliar to us here. That believers should love one another, something that is emphasized repeatedly. In fact, even in the letter itself, Peter repeats it a number of times. And so in 1 Peter 2.17, he says, love the brotherhood. 1 Peter 3.8, all of you be of one mind, having compassion for one another, love as brothers. 1 Peter 4.8, above all things, have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. And so you see even in this very brief letter that it is repeated. Now, it's not a new command. 
in that sense. The Lord Jesus had already issued this command. John 13, 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. And so Peter here is now bringing that teaching of the Lord Jesus and applying it to this particular set of circumstances. For the Lord Jesus said in John 13, 35, by this all will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And so this is the, the principle that is found throughout the New Testament. Romans 12, verse 10, be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. Philippians 2, Paul tells them to maintain love between the brethren. Hebrews 13, 1, let brotherly love continue. Or 1 John 3, 11, this is the message that you heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. It's so simple, and it's found throughout the New Testament. Now, the word that Peter uses here in our text is a word that in the original expresses the highest kind of love, the love of the will. And so it's, it's not the love of emotion or the love only of feeling, but it is the love of the will. It is a determined act. It is a, a love which responds to command. And Peter speaks of the command here with a renewed intensity and practicality. And so he draws it out as he continues to exhort these believers who are under great pressure and persecution that they should love one another. And the question that we need to ask first and foremost is this, how can we love like this? How can we possibly love in the manner that Peter is describing here and as we're exhorted to do throughout the New Testament? And can a believer actually love like this? You see, for the command to be given, it follows that those who are commanded have the capacity to do it. But this command, friends, is not for everyone. The unbeliever can't love in the manner that Peter is talking about. You see, the unbeliever doesn't have the capacity to love like this. It's not known to them. It is strange. They cannot do it. Even those who are religious who do not know Jesus Christ, cannot do it. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Woe to you Pharisees, for you tithe, mint, and rue, and all manner of herbs. In other words, you do all the religious stuff, and yet pass by justice and the love of God. They knew nothing of those things. They had their outward religion, but they didn't know God. They didn't know anything of the love of God. Or John 5:42, Jesus says, But I know you that you do not have the love of God in you. And there Jesus makes it clear that a person who is not born again, who doesn't have that, that life of Christ, is incapable of loving in the way that is spoken of in our text. 1 John 3, By this we know love, because he laid down his life for us, and we also ought to lay down our lives for the brethren. But whoever has this world's goods and sees his brother in need and shuts up his heart from him, how does the love of God abide in him? The conclusion is that such love is absent from such a person. And so instead, loving with thought and word and deed in truth demonstrates that God is at work in the life of an individual. 
that there is that vital saving relationship with Jesus Christ, that there is a new nature because it is only when that is in place that the capacity to love like this is there. 1 John 4.12, if we love one another, God abides in us and his love has been perfected in us. And so if God does not abide in you, if you don't know God, then you cannot love others with this love which is from above. And, you know, we can feel love in terms of desire and human affection and, and natural love and emotion, but we're talking here about supernatural love, which shows itself in an act of the will and obedience. And so in this text, Peter poses this question, who can love like this? How can they love like this? When are they enabled to love like this? And so look at verse 22, if you will. He says, since you have been purified, uh, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth through the Spirit in sincere love of the brethren. And basically he's saying this, the believer is given the capacity to sincerely love the brethren when their souls were purified. And you say, well, when was that? Well, in the text it says, when they obeyed the truth. And there he is speaking of that point of trust in Christ. When there was the belief of the gospel, that appropriation of Christ, that trusting Jesus for yourself. And so as God intervened, as God granted life, as there was repentance and faith, that new life, new nature, new desires were given, as well as the capacity to genuinely love the brethren. And so he says, since you have purified your souls. Now, there is something very significant about that phrase because it suggests that this is a past act with ongoing results. So this is something that has definitively happened, and yet the consequences are still known. So in other words, the loving of the brethren demands a purified soul. An impure soul, sinful, unwashed, unredeemed, unsaved, unconverted, cannot love like this. It is a dividing line, and there shouldn't be any doubt about that. And when Peter speaks of the soul here, he's, he's speaking really of the, the whole, the real person, the whole spiritual being. You know, earlier in the chapter, he's already spoken of the salvation of your souls. So when you are saved, when your souls were purified, if you are a believer tonight, you receive the capacity to respond to this command to love the brethren. They say, well, let's think about this a little bit more. When was this purification? Well, Peter says it was at salvation. When you were made new, when you were born again. And you say, well, where do you see that? Well, we have to go on a little bit further. Look at verse 23. You see, it's, it's important to understand, because he speaks there in verse 23 of the, the reality of the new birth. This is a significant, vital thing. It was something which happened in the past, but with ongoing results. So he takes the reader in the way that he's speaking to look back to the time when they were converted and to see that at such a pivotal moment, purified at the time they were saved. And verse 23 also emphasizes that when a person is born again, it is the work of God. This is God intervening. This is God saving, God transforming. Whereas when you look at verse 22, the emphasis is more on the response in salvation from a person's perspective. 
But even such a response is only possible because God is at work. So in both of those verses, behind all is God. God in his grace, God saving, God drawing. And it is clear that in this, this salvation that is given, there is a purging in salvation. Now, what do I mean? Well, when a person is saved by grace, it not only deals with and purges and cleanses the past, but it also covers and enables for the future. So our sin is dealt with, past, present, future, and we are also given the capacity to live to God's glory from that time onwards. So it's a cleansing that covers, but also it's a cleansing that enables. And so the believer is forgiven. They are made to be right with God. They are given new nature, new desires to live for God. And that's why we read Ezekiel 36, and particularly those verses, verses 24 to 27, where it speaks, I will sprinkle clean water on you. You shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness, from all your idols. Deals with the past. I will give you a new heart, put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh, give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you, cause you to walk in my statutes. You will keep my judgments and do them. So enabling for the future. Those are new covenant promises. And that's what Peter picks up in his second letter, 2 Peter 1.4. You may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. So delivered from the corruption of the world to a pure pattern of life in Christ. And he goes on to say in 2 Peter 1, He who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness, and has forgotten that he was cleansed, purified, from his old sins. And so he looks back to salvation. He speaks of it as a cleansing, a purification, cleansing of the past, cleansing for the future that enables you to live a different life and to love in a different way. You see, if you look again at verse 22, there are some who make the mistake here of seeing this purely as a human work. When it says, you purified your souls but it is not a work that we do it is God's work and even in Ezekiel we mention those verses I read them out to you a few moments ago the emphasis is on what the Lord does I will cleanse I will give you a new heart I will put a new spirit within I will remove the heart of stone it is God's work 1 Corinthians 1, you see your calling, brethren, that not many wise according to the flesh, not many mighty, not many noble are called, but God has chosen the foolish things of the world to put to shame the wise. God has chosen the weak things of the world to put to shame the things which are mighty, the base things of the world, and the things which are despised, God has chosen. Why? That none should boast before him. It's all his work. It's interesting in that passage that Paul then goes on to write in 1 Corinthians 1, but of him you are in Christ Jesus who became for us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption. Again, it's all him. It's his doing. It's his work. And in Christ as a believer, we are given all that is necessary. And so let him who boasts, boast in the Lord. 
And so many passages draw out this great truth. Salvation, this cleansing is all of God, his work from beginning to end. Think of Titus 2, verse 14, speaking of Christ, who gave himself for us, that he might redeem us from every lawless deed and purify for himself his own special people zealous for good works. He purified us. He did it. He saved us. Titus 3.5, according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Spirit. He gave us the washing, the purging, the cleansing, the new birth. Hebrews 1.3, wonderful verse. Christ, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The Bible is clear, this, this purging, this salvation is the work of God, it is the work of Christ. And Peter is pointing the believers back to that moment when they were brought to trust in Christ. So you say, well, why does Peter say you have purified your soul? Well, though this purification which deals with your, you and, and washes you in order to live for God's glory in the future is a work of God, what we must understand is this. It is never apart from the will of the sinner. God transforms the will so that they desire to respond, so that they are enabled to respond. That's why you hear the calls throughout the scripture like Isaiah 55. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way. The unrighteous man his thoughts. Let him return to the Lord. Or James 4 verse 8. Draw near to God and he will draw near to you. Cleanse your hands you sinners. Purify your hearts you double-minded. So that those, those gospel calls... But God is at work to transform the will so that the sinner comes willingly and desires to know God. And so God alone saves, but that work in a person's life transforms the desire, transforms the will, so that the sinner, who was once at enmity with God, who didn't want God, who wanted to live without reference to God, now willingly comes to God and desires him and to know him. And so, maybe in your own experience, you can remember that when you were saved, you wanted to come to the Lord. You longed to be forgiven. You wanted to be cleansed and to live for him and to know him. But behind all of that is the sovereign, gracious work of God. And so, well, if that's the case, if all these things are in place, why do we still sin? If we've been purified, why do we still sin when we're, we're saved? You know what, why, why do we go on like that? Well, when we're saved, we're justified. That declaration that we are forgiven and declared righteous in Christ, accepted with God. We're also purified in position. All our sin is dealt with past, present, future. We are sanctified, we will be glorified. It is not in doubt. But with sanctification, purification, what is ours in position needs to be worked out in practice. And so there is that ongoing work to make us like the Lord Jesus, the Holy Spirit, as it were, to transform us. And so we still battle against sin and the flesh and the devil. And so in that process of being changed to be more like the Lord Jesus. 
And so even though the outcome isn't in doubt, it is still going on, that transformational process. We have that new nature, but it's being fully uh, realized. We've been transformed to be like the Savior. And so if we're believers, when God saved us, when we knew that purifying of our souls, when our sins were washed away, when we're given a new pure heart, this is the key thing that he's getting across. We have been given a new capacity to love to love supernaturally, to love in a manner that the world cannot love. It is otherworldly. And again, if you look at verse 22, he says, since you have purified your souls in obeying the truth. Now, I don't know if you've noticed this, but Peter is speaking here, as we said, about salvation and the, the transformation, the change, the trust in Christ. But there is a word that we often associate with that missing. And that word is faith. He doesn't seem to mention faith. But he's speaking of the moment of salvation, first of all, as a, a turning from sin, as a purging of sin, the old sin washed away, new capacity for holiness. And then he speaks of obedience to the truth. So he identifies two things at the time when a person is converted. There is a turning from sin, and there is a believing and submission to the truth. Now, what am I describing? Saving faith. That's what faith is. That's always there in true saving faith. A turning from sin, a believing the truth, a pursuing of obedience. It's the same pattern earlier on in 1 Peter 1 verse 2. Elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father in sanctification of the Spirit for obedience. And so the obeying of which Peter speaks is obedience to the truth. And again, that is so countercultural. It is so against what the world proclaims and stands for because our society rejects the idea of absolute truth. And there's an antagonism, there's a hostility to the truth of God. People don't want truth to be binding on them. They want their own truth. And they see objective truth as the enemy. They don't want to submit. They don't want to obey. But the tragedy of fallen humanity is that they spend their lives obeying the lie and obeying what is false rather than what is true. But that's not the case for the believer. And Peter takes us right back to the point of salvation, defining salvation, and beyond that to the Savior himself. Repentance from sin, believing Christ, believing the truth, submissive obedience to the truth, believing the gospel, Jesus Christ crucified and risen again, the truth that sets us free and cleanses us. Think of John 15, 3, when Jesus said, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. And so when the saving message comes, it cleanses, it brings submission and obedience, and faith is often expressed as obedience. Think of Romans 1.5, through him we have received grace and apostleship for obedience to the faith among all nations for his name. Obedience to the faith is another word for salvation. Romans 16, 26, by the prophetic scriptures, preaching of Christ, made known to all nations according to the commandment of the everlasting God for obedience to the faith. And so it doesn't just mean that faith is an act of obedience. It means an obedient faith that goes on obeying the truth. 
That's the reality of saving faith. And so salvation is purging, it is obedience. It is purging, obedience, repentance, submission. And friends, I'll tell you this, it's not a popular message. And that is true today. But it is the biblical message. As one explains, salvation takes place when in response to the call of God, the sinner hears the truth, turns from his sin, and obeys the call to believe and submit, and carries on obeying and submitting to the word of God. It's when you receive the capacity for this supernatural love. So when we were saved, part of that purging is the new capacity to love each other. Think of Romans 5, 5. The love of God has been poured out in our hearts by the Holy Spirit who has given to us. Paul says in 1 Thessalonians 4, Concerning brotherly love, you have no need that I should write to you, for you yourselves are taught by God to love one another. He says that the believer doesn't need someone to write to tell them this because God has already taught them and set it in their heart. We know what to do. 1 John 3, 14, we know that we are passed from death to life because we love the brethren. It's just part of being a true believer. You love the brethren. Friends, someone who says that they love Jesus and is a believer and yet has no desire to be with believers... No desire to ever fellowship with believers. No desire to ever meet the needs of others. No desire to have any committed relationship with the family of God. John seriously challenges them. Because he said these things should be evident because they are the sign of life. The life of God. The love that has been poured out in the heart. By this we know love because he laid down his life for us. And we also ought to lay down our lives to the brethren. And this is his commandment that we should believe on the name of his son, Jesus Christ, and love one another as he gave us commandment. It's there because you know the Lord. It's there because you're a Christian and therefore we should do it. 1 John 4, 7, Beloved, let us love one another. Love is of God. Everyone who loves is born of God and knows God. He who does not love does not know God. But God is love. You know, so many believers, oh, well, I can't love like that. I can't love believers like that. But, you know, Peter says, you've got the capacity when you are converted. And now we need to exercise it. And if it's not there, you need to ask yourself whether you really know God. If someone says, John writes in 1 John 4, I love God and hates his brother, he is a liar. For he who does not love his brother whom he has seen, how can he love God whom he has not seen? And this commandment we have from him, that he who loves God must love his brother also. You know, that is a strong statement. You know, John does not really leave any doubt about what he's saying. And Peter says here the same thing, the capacity to love the brethren fervently, to love one another fervently, comes at salvation. And it is genuine, sincere love. You can't say, oh, I love God. I love Christ. If you love God, you love Christ. If you love Christ, you love those who belong to Christ. It's just basic. And friends, this leads us in into some things we're going to consider over future weeks, God willing. But as we finish, who are we to love like this? 
verse 22, were to love one another. And Peter has in view primarily there the brethren of the believers. And it's so important that when you are saved, God not only gave you this capacity to love in a new way, but he also gave you a new family into which you can exercise that love. The church, and specifically the local church to which you belong. And when we love one another, it is a witness to the world around us that we really are followers of Jesus. And when we don't love one another, it sends out a very different message. And by the way, when I'm speaking about this genuine love, I'm not just talking about sentimentality, which might show itself in exuberance for an hour on a Sunday morning. I'm talking about love for the brethren 24-7 throughout the week. You know, that is the challenge, to love one another. The new ground of affection is oneness in Christ. It surpasses all earthly relations, all earthly limitations, and we are to exercise this love in the family together. Jesus said, this is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. This is my commandment, not an optional extra. And by the way, it doesn't speak about loving the world. In fact, the Bible says, don't love the world, meaning the evil system of the world. But someone might say, well, well, how can we win the world if we don't love the world? The Bible says when believers love each other like this, it will impact the world because the world longs for this type of belonging, this type of loving. And it's such a strong witness and it is attractive in a broken world. There is nothing like it. You know, a very practical example of this is given in 1 Corinthians 10. You can turn there if you will. Um, Peter uh, refers to this type of thing as we'll go on through the letter. But in 1 Corinthians 10, Paul speaks of this situation where two believers go for dinner, if you will, with a Gentile unbeliever. And uh, the older Christian, mature in the faith, the younger a new believer... And the unbelieving Gentile brings out the food and it contains meat. And the young Christian asks the mature believer whether the meat has been bought in the temple marketplace. You say, well, why is that important? Well, it seems to be implied that as a young Christian, he's turned from idolatry, he's left paganism, but the issue is still fresh to him, so he struggles, he cannot eat this meat that is offered to idols. Now, the mature believer says, well, you know, you don't need to worry about that. You can eat it because it's not a problem. And, you know, we're seeking to come alongside the unbeliever. But the young Christian can't get past the issue. And so he asks the unbeliever, where is the meat from? And the answer comes, the temple market. And so now the mature believer faces a dilemma. If he doesn't eat the food, the unbeliever is going to be offended. If he does eat, his Christian brother is going to be offended. So what should he do? Well, Paul says, don't eat. You say, well, what about the offense to the unbeliever? Well, Paul says for the mature believer to eat the meat would be to show that he treats unbelievers more lovingly than his brother in Christ. And so by making that stand, the unbeliever would conclude that he is more important than the one who is meant to be his brother. If the mature believer does not eat and explains that he cannot offend his brother in Christ, the unbeliever then is brought to see the depth of that relationship 
and the love that is evident between them. And that type of love is attractive in this broken, messy world. When we love each other, it is a powerful testimony in the world. And those outside the church should look at believers, they should look at us, and they should see that we don't turn on each other. That we don't go out of our way to find fault with each other. But that we stand one another, that we, we support one another, we protect one another with a fervency. Not just a lukewarmness. With a fervency because it is love which is beyond the natural capacity. It is the love of Christ in us and working through us. And we're going to see this more and more in the weeks ahead. And friends, I am not telling you anything this night that you don't know. You know that if we are believers, we should love one another. You know the truth. You know the doctrine. You know the theology. The question is, how is it going to impact you practically? Now, I've been really challenged by this. And I'm sharing it with you after it has challenged my own heart. And too often we trivialize this command to love one another by just thinking of sentimentality or, or just passing emotions so that we can tick that box off. Or it's minimized to something so small that it doesn't really cost us or impact us. Greater love has no man than this, than a man lay down his life for his friends. And let me ask you as I ask me, when was the last time you loved your brother and sister in such a way that it cost you? When was the last time you came alongside someone who was struggling in the fellowship? When was the last time you set aside your own plans to spend time with someone who was lonely? When was the last time that you stepped out to go and spend time with someone? When was the last time that you, you opened your home and invited someone in? When was the last time that you demonstrated your genuine, real care? Love that reaches down and impacts. And not just on your own terms, but at cost. Not just nice feelings which look good, but genuine loving care. You see, how did Jesus love us? It wasn't trivial. It wasn't sentimental. He loved us incredible depth and moved to meet us at the point of our need. He loved us by showing mercy in our brokenness. He loved us by being there when no one else was. And you know, I pray that we would love more like that in our church family. And we need to love like that. This world needs us to love like that. And we need to begin to love at the level where love is biblical, not just sentimental tokens. Love that costs. And there'll be some who say, maybe you're sat there right now thinking, well, I can't do that. But Peter has said, if you're a true believer, God has given you the capacity to love like that. And so will you trust the Lord to enable you to exercise love like that? Will you ask him to help you to love like that? Will I ask him to help me? We need to do all that we can to pursue that. Because we are living in a day which needs that fresh demonstration of true Christ-like love. Transform lives to love as Christ loved. And it's hard. It's inconvenient. It's sacrificial, but it is rewarding and joyous, and above all, it pleases our master. And he has given us the capacity to do it. 
And so I pray that God would help us. And I pray that this place and in our relationships with each other will be a place where love would abound. And those around us will know that we belong to Jesus and that we love like this because we've known his love for us and we want others to know it too. Amen.